but it's it's been like that for all my heroes. You know, I sang with Ray Davies a few years back at at a show in London, and I had you know dinner with Bowie once even. So it's just like it's just this, I feel like Forrest Gump sometimes. You know, <laughs> just mm-hmm. a, stumbling into these, these scenarios. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Tourist Information. I'm thrilled to have on the show a rather inexplicable guest because I never thought I would cross paths with them. It's legendary Canadian singer-songwriter Ron Sexsmith. He has been lauded by the likes of Paul McCartney, Elvis Costello, Katie Lang, uh, Chris Martin. He has written songs that have been covered by Feist and turned into... Big hit. He is a kind of enigmatic figure for me in music because the artistic footprint that he has is as conspicuous as it should be. And yet the commercial success has not been commiserate with the talent as a musician, as a the songwriting, the voice. Um, he always reminded me of a cross between Harry Nielsen and Nick Drake. And uh, maybe not being as appreciated commercially as much as he should have been fueled some of the magical angst that, and longing that's in that voice that, that I've connected to for decades now, 20 years since I first heard him. I remember first hearing him traveling to Europe and uh, being away from home for the first time. And all of it coming on the heels of breaking up with a first girlfriend and and connecting with a second one and then losing both of them and going from one cold payphone after another across Europe, trying to resuscitate one or both of these relationships and failing so completely. And the soundtrack for a lot of that was Ron Sexsmith. And one song in particular at different times speaks about um, a lonely voice coming from a cold payphone. And uh, I was just mainlining that shit day after day, hour after hour, just as the only kind of comfort that I could find. And I think that that's a common thread with people that have connected to this guy, is somehow in singing about his own struggles and what he's overcome and, and what he desires and what he's lost, he sings about yours too, as all the best songwriters do and yet that voice just transports it into its own place at the same time so yeah i've never interviewed a singer songwriter before felt a little different i don't i don't know why um because ron also just wrote a novel not long ago um but i, I had a peculiar idiosyncratic set of nerves going into this one um but he couldn't have been more generous and kind and uh I'm glad we crossed paths, and I hope you enjoy this week's guest, Ron Sexsmith, on Tourist Information. So you are in Ontario. That's right. Okay. You're from St. Catharines originally? Yeah. um, Yeah, born and raised. um, Moved, you know, moved when I was... I guess 18, started, uh, went uh, out west and then went out east and then lived in Quebec for a bit too. 
Where did you go out west? Um, I, I ended up in Victoria, B.C., I think about 1982 or 83, and uh, just I moved out with a friend who was um, traveling out there. I'd never seen the country, so I just, uh, you know, I just thought I would tag along, and that was, uh, that was, you know, I think good for me to do at that time. And I was just, you know, when I was out there, I was just sort of busking and uh, doing odd jobs. How has the country changed for you? I mean, somebody, have you ever tried to estimate how many miles you've traveled like around the world? Um, I actually haven't, um, you know, but that was, you know, my first attempt, really. Although uh, I'd never, you know, I, I never got on an airplane until I was like 29, I think, you know. So, um, but when, definitely when I got my first record deal, uh, it seemed like I was just always traveling, and um, pretty much straight from, you know, 1994 right up until before the pandemic. So it was. Uh, it's actually been kind of nice to have a break from traveling. Well, that, that was something I was interested in. Like, uh, you got your first record deal in 1985, right? Um, no, no, I, I did. Um, I was trying to make. You know, I was putting out you know cassette albums basically i mean i put out two trying to get a record deal um having you know some interest there was some interest in toronto and and that led me to moving to toronto in 1987 but i didn't get signed until um i got signed to interscope publishing i think it was around 90 you know 92 or 3 and then that ultimately led to a record deal i think in uh i signed in 94 i believe Hmm. I just wondered, like, as I was researching before we talked, it is uh. always part of every narrative about you that you have this incredible amount of influence with such established, successful, revered recording artists, and they're like, why hasn't he exploded in a way that's commensurate with the esteem that you've been able to achieve within the recording community? And I... I just kind of yeah. wondered when you started out, like, what, I don't know if expectations is the right word, but what do you imagine was going to happen at the beginning? Well, I mean, I was just mostly grateful to finally get in the door because I was already, you know, uh, in into my 30s, right? My first album came out, I was 31, and uh, and I was, you know, in Toronto working as a courier and seeing some of my friends get record deals and I was really starting to think it wasn't going to happen for me. Um so I certainly never had uh, delusions or anything. I mean, when I was a kid I used to dream about being like Elton John and you know playing stadiums and all that kind of stuff, but um you know, and I think it maybe if had I been signed in my early 20s when I looked better, maybe they would have the labels would have been able to do something with me you know that way um but i think by the time i did get signed i was kind of set in my ways and uh i spent so much time focusing on the songwriting that i really didn't know what i was supposed to look like or how i was supposed to dress and and all that stuff so so just the fact that i'm still here 17 albums later um you know and i i don't really know what people why they would say that anyway because 
you know, the kind of music I make is never connected at radio. Um, you know, by the time I got signed, the stuff I heard on the radio was, it just didn't sound like what I was doing. Uh, maybe, you know, you know some, sometimes you hear, you know, Elvis Costello say, oh, if he'd been signed in the 60s or 70s, you know, he would be, you know, a big star. But I don't, I don't know if that's true either. But, um, but you know, in my own way, I mean, I've headlined Royal Albert Hall and I've met most of my heroes. And some of my albums have actually done quite well. Hmm. Who who were some of those heroes growing up beyond the fantasy of the Elton John thing? Who were the ones who really influenced you early? Well, you know, as a kid, uh, I was I was mostly glued to the radio, and I didn't know what anybody looked like, but I loved people like Bill Withers and Harry Nelson mm-hmm. and Badfinger. Um, Buddy Holly was probably my introduction to music because uh, my mom had a 45 of his, and she let me play, you know, she had this box of 45s, which was mostly 50s and country western music. And I, I was just fascinated by these little things, especially the Buddy Holly record. And I think, you know, I always go back to him, you know, as, as being kind of in my DNA from the, from the start. And I related to him more than Elvis Presley, because, he, you know, Elvis just seemed so good looking and so you know, impossibly cool, whereas Buddy, you know, I wore glasses. I felt kind of a bit nerdy, I guess. So, um, yeah, but then going into it a bit more, it was, most of the people I loved were from England. Like, I loved the Kinks and the Beatles and, uh, and yeah, Elton John. Was, was Nick Drake at all somebody on your radar early? Oh, not at all. No, I mean, the, the first time I ever heard about him was a journalist asking me if I'd listened to Nick Drake, you know, in the 90s. Mm-hmm. I was over in the UK, and I hadn't heard of him at all. And people were sort of comparing me to him. People were also comparing me to people like Tim Harden, who I'd also never heard of before I got signed. So, um, you know, but after the fact, I became a fan of both of those guys. Um, and, you know, I think my music... You know, my influences were were more people like Ray Davies and things like that than um, you know, and Gordon Lightfoot. So, so my sound, if I have one, it's sort of that's where it lies in the in between sort of Canadian folk troubadours and you know, British invasion, I guess. Mm. What do you? I mean, I was in Canada until I was thirty. And I remember growing up in the like the early eighties and having music videos, like the first time I saw music videos and seeing Brian Adams on there. And I'm still shocked when I walk around Manhattan to hear him in a supermarket. Like yeah. Americans know who he is. And because I feel like there was something insular about being Canadian. Like we had a kind of quota on the radio of how much Canadian content there was that at least yeah. for me and some people I know, there was a kind of feeling of an inferiority complex a little yeah, bit. for sure. Also, also a pride, but I, like, I wonder what that's like for you as somebody who was on the airways. Was there a sense of trying to break out of Canada in any way, in the UK or in the United States? Um, well, my, I kind of came in the back door in a way because I tried for years to get a record deal in Canada um, and got turned down by everybody maybe two or three times and I actually got signed 
in Los Angeles. And I think a lot of people in the record industry in Canada didn't see it coming. They were like, well, you know, and there was a lot of backpedaling going on, you know, because people had been telling me for years, I didn't, you know, I didn't have a prayer, you know, to make it. I didn't, I don't know, whatever they said. I kept all the rejection letters. And um, so, so my problem in the beginning was, you know, I would tour Canada and people thought I was from someplace else. Like the first country to really take notice of me was uh, was England, or or maybe I should say the first, you know, were Britain, you know, because it was all those places. It was Ireland and Scotland. And um, after a year of my, you know, my first album being out, uh, hadn't really done that well. But at the end of '95, Elvis Costello started raving about it, and it was like the shot heard around the world. And then I spent all of '96 touring that album too. So. So it, that's when it started to kind of come back to Canada, and I started to get a bit of appreciation here, which always meant so much to me. Um, I mean, obviously, Brian Adams and so many Canadian artists have, are international and have, have blown up, but there's also a bunch of them that couldn't get arrested outside of Canada. So I feel lucky, you know, that I have an international following. Yeah, I was just looking at some other... Canadian recording artists like Anne Murray has sold something like I think 60 million albums internationally and I don't think I've ever heard American yeah she's gigantically popular far more so than I I ever knew yeah I mean she sold more records than Lightfoot and you know Leonard Cohen and all those people I mean she was the first kind of on the scene and I just watched an amazing documentary about her as well but and I love her and I've sort of become kind of a Twitter friend of hers. We've had a few nice chats, and which is just sort of surreal. Um, but yeah, you know, she's always been kind of a role model that way, and, and life because, you know, Neil and Joni and Leonard, they all kind of moved away, even though, you know, they're very much Canadian, and and they're, you know, those guys are big influences for me, and also just on the world. It's It's pretty amazing to be a Canadian songwriter, you know, starting out and you have that sort of daunting legacy, right, you know. Um, and uh, and, I, and I was always very upfront about where I came from, too, in the, you know, when, when I first got signed, because, you know, those are the footsteps I was trying to walk in. Right. Well, and you mentioned sort of looking the right part, and I was reading a, a 2015 New Yorker profile. These are your words. You describe yourself as looking like a drowned rat. Oh. <laughs> it's an amazingly cruel... Uh, well, I must have been referring to myself after a gig because okay. I you know, would sweat a lot and my hair would just be just all crazy. But, um, but yeah, in, in general, I mean, back then anyway, I mean... Now I, I just see the ravages of time whenever I look in the mirror. But back then, I, I looked very young. I was in my 30s, but a lot of people thought I was like 21 or something. So, yeah. Um, But yeah, I, I, I never felt like I had the, you know, how people like Ryan Adams could, they look cool, they have a cigarette dangling in front of an old typewriter or something. I could never do that, and I never, could never project that kind of thing. It, it just made me think a little bit about a parallel with Elliot Smith mm. as somebody who was very uncomfortable with their appearance and not looking the part of, of kind of a pop star. Yeah. And yet that seemed to be a huge ingredient in what connected him to a lot of his fan base. And 
I remember I've only seen you perform once live after mm-hmm. my my brother recommended an album of yours, an early album, and he said he went to one of your shows and bumped into you on the way to the stage, or, or maybe it was outside the concert, and he told you that you were an inspiration for him to pursue his passion, and you handed him two tickets right away. Wow. Which stayed with him for the rest of his life. Wait, what city? This was in Vancouver. Vancouver, okay. And and so I just wondered, like, like when I saw you physically, you, you're right, you like you don't look like the the kind of pop glossy kind of young boy band sort of thing but your appearance was so striking nobody looks like you and i wondered if it, in some way it might have been of benefit to connecting to others of us who don't look like um what yeah. tv is trying to peddle <laughs> yeah i mean um you know i think yeah i had certain things uh, working for me i mean I, I always had sort of rock and roll hair I guess you could say you know like so that was you know if you were standing at the back of the room you'd be oh that's Ron there you know um, and you know when you're younger I was skinnier and all that kind of stuff too whereas now you know I'm older and hair's thinning and all these sort of very humbling things that happen but um, I, th- I thought you know and we tried to dress up whenever I played you know we'd wear frilly shirts and things so we tried to definitely you know, put across like some kind of effort of rock and roll <laughs> sort of lifestyle. Um, you know, and, and even Elliot Smith. I mean, I always thought he looked super cool. You know, we met. I got to meet him a couple times, and he was kind of has you know how you'd expect. He was very sweet, very shy, uh, but also he had that other thing going for him, which is not a, really a good thing. But he had the sort of you know that kind of heroin cool thing, right? With those yeah with that crowd and so did Kurt Cobain I didn't have that um so but you know I just it was such a tragedy when when he ended his life because he had so much great stuff to come um I remember even once not long after he died someone came up to me I was signing autographs at the merch table and he was you know he was he said to me like you know don't basically don't kill yourself like as if I was going to do that but but it's you know it's a lot to handle for some people, I guess. Did you, know. you watching somebody like him? I mean, unusual path to stardom, to yeah. being jump started with Goodwill Hunting. I mean, it seems like something like that could have happened for you. You've got, you know, Michael Bublé, Feist, Rod Stewart, Nick Lowe, Elvis Costello, Katie Lang covering your music. I mean, did you ever think that? Oh, what what if this happens to me early? Well, yeah, I was definitely aware of the goodwill hunting thing, and my, you know, my people, my manager was, and they were always like trying to pitch my music for films, and I had, you know, some, some luck in that area. I mean, there was an Irish film uh, called Intermission, I think, that used three of my songs, and I think it was early 2000s, and that was, you know, did quite well in Ireland, but I, I never. You know, the other thing that I never got that some people did was I didn't get to do Letterman or Leno or those type of things. So Mm. I think that sort of, you know, hindered my success a bit in America, even though, I, you know, I did do Conan a couple times. But, um, you know, but you can't, you know, it's every career is different, you know, and you can't expect these things. And I'm just, you know, again, getting back to the beginning of this, I'm mostly grateful that, 
when I think back on my career, it's just it kind of blows my mind really that all the places I've been and and all that. And every time I make a new album, it's just it's almost like I can't believe it exists, you know, because of all the work that goes into each one, and just the fact that it that some label is putting it out, you know. So because I've never sold many records. Hmm. Is it is it in any way less of a burden being a recording artist now? You know, your birthday's in a few weeks. You'll be yeah. 58. Um, is it harder now or is it easier now? I mean, do you feel adjusted into this as a career more than when you started? How does it feel now as opposed to when you began? All right. Well, I definitely feel less pressure to, um, I don't know, try to break out like with every album. It was never like the forefront of my mind, but... You know, I would write these songs that sounded catchy to me, and I would always, in the studio, you know, there would be this certain feeling like, well, this one could possibly be a single, so we should, you know, give it some extra special care um, with the idea that maybe I would have a hit and that would lead to other things. Um, I don't really feel that anymore. I mean, I, I always hope for the best when I put out a record that, you know, someone will play it. Um, the only album really that I've ever had much radio play was Long Player Late Bloomer, where I had two top, I think two top five songs in the UK. And that was sort of kind of beyond belief, you know, because that was just a few years ago. So, um, But I think in some ways um, I'm singing better now than I did on all my early records. So I think, you know, there's probably a better chance that I could have a hit now than when I started. Hmm. Well, you mentioned you mentioned crossing Kurt Cobain, but you never crossed paths with him, did you? At any point? No. In fact, he died uh, when I was making my very first album. It, it came on the news there. I was in Woodstock, New York, and that seemed so unexpected. And I mean, this will this will might sound a bit strange, but I always sort of credited Nirvana in a way for you know for a guy like me to have a career because I always thought they sort of blew up the 80s. You know, the 80s was about yeah. flamboyance and pink and big hair and all this. And I was, I just struck out in the 80s. No one wanted me, the kind of music I made. And so when, after Nirvana did that, it seemed possible for a guy like me to kind of come strolling through with just a guitar and and to sing, you know, sort of unironically about stuff. And, and so... Mm. And I think probably other songwriters would say the same. Yeah, and I, I don't want to be too reductive about this, but like one interesting aspect about Cobain's early ascent was he was always wearing a T-shirt that was designed by Daniel Johnston. And oh, I didn't seemed, know that. It seemed to, I think it was the album cover, Hi, How Are You? And it was like a weird creature or something. on the <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, but it brought a lot of journalists to say, who the fuck is that guy? What is that T-shirt? Where does that come from? And it seems to be the beginning of sort of mainstream attention for somebody like Daniel Johnston, who I, I love his music myself. I know he yeah. died fairly recently. Um, but I wonder if Daniel Johnston's career, I guess I, I'm so interested that what would have happened to you if your first album would have just exploded in a way like an Elliot Smith or a Kurt Cobain or... Um, yeah one of those kind of guys yeah I mean I guess we'll never know um, you know I mean I feel 
you know, it didn't set the world on fire, but it also it did put me on the map. So, yeah, um, you know, I think the year, uh, like it came out in 95, but it didn't really catch on until 96. And, and at the end of that year, I think I was on almost every critic's list of, you know, album of the year. And that was, um, so, so yeah, so that, it was, at the time, Interscope, they didn't really know what to do with me, but that, then they started thinking, well, he's, they had a term back then called a cred artist, you know, <laughs> like on a label, you, you could be a cred artist, someone who had all, you know, good reviews, but maybe didn't sell as much as someone else. And, and you could sort of coast on that. And so for a while I did actually, but then there came a point where it didn't really mean anything to them anymore. And then, you know, I got sort of bounced around, but, um, you know, but I was always trying to, to ha have a hit record and, and they used to think that one of these days I was going to hit it out of the park. Um, you know, so I don't know. I mean, it's it just for whatever reason, I, the songs I was writing didn't connect in that way that, um, you know, the Elliot did or, or obviously Nirvana did. So. Well, one thing it seemed to accomplish for you, though, is this ability to meet your heroes. And I wonder what that was like, like who those heroes were that you've met and what it was like to encounter them given yeah. this axiomatic warning to not meet them. Well, you know, I, I have a kind of a theory about it, because when I came out, the first people to really champion me were what I would call the old guard, right? Mm -hmm. It was Elton and Elvis and McCartney, um, you know, and I met all these guys early on. I mean, my first tour of England, I went to Paul McCartney's house for breakfast, which is just still probably the best day of my life, you know. Um, I was getting, uh, you know, I'd met Elvis Costello in Nashville uh, not a few months after he had championed my record, and I was playing a showcase there, and just just as I was about to begin, I was in a church, and the back of the church opened up. It was like a movie, and, and he and his wife came in, and they sat in, like, I think, the second pew. And then the next day we had breakfast, and we've sort of been friends ever since. I met Nick Lowe around that same time. And um, so it really gave me a sense that I was doing something right, that all these people who I admired, uh, even in America, people like Randy Newman and John Hyatt were saying nice things to me. So I it was very, um, I was kind of pinching myself all the time because, um, but it just, you know, it just made me feel like, you know, I wasn't crazy or something for thinking that I, you know, I could do this. and. But they they definitely, you know, and they, they still kind of lift me up. I mean, Elton John, just even on my last album, played it on his podcast. So, um, and, that, and this was all very unexpected. And uh, so, I, I again, I don't know what they saw in me, but I, I just think it's that I have so much respect for what they do. Mm. Well, I think if, if I may pry a little bit, what was it like to have breakfast at Paul McCartney's house and also what made it one of the best days of your life? I've never heard this story before. Oh, well, I was touring, again, this is another surreal moment, is my very first show in England, uh, the band Squeeze opened up for me. They were like a secret, um, you know, special guest. And But right after that show, I went on a tour of the UK opening for Squeeze. And, and Chris Difford... Um, as it turned out, lived down the road from McCartney. So one night, he asked. He said I should cancel my hotel. It was a Saturday night, 
and he invited me to spend it at his house in the country. So I went with him, and basically the next morning, um, you know, he called over there. You know, Linda was still alive, and and they'd all been reading about me in the Mojo magazines and all that. So they were, um, so they invited us over for breakfast, and I just couldn't believe my luck. You know, so we went there, and and you know, even before we got out of the car, Paul was at the back door giving us the thumbs up and waving, <laughs> whatever. And uh, Linda was so kind, and she was um, battling cancer at the time. Um, and we talked about Gordon Lightfoot, you know, Linda and I did. And then, you know, Paul, who was sitting right across from me, I couldn't even look at him at first, but then we started talking about, I was asking him mostly about wings, actually. And uh, he seemed flattered by that. And at some point, he took me to the living room and he played me some new tracks. And then he got out some guitars and we sang a few songs together. Um, it was, you know, maybe three hours I was there. And I really felt after that, you know, leaving his place that I could have, you know, hit a tree and died. I would have, you know, happily because it was just so, uh, you know, surreal. And um, But it's it's been like that for all my heroes. You know, I had... I sang with Ray Davies a few years back at, at a show in London, and I had, you know, dinner with Bowie once even. So it's just like, it's just this, I feel like Forrest Gump sometimes, you know, <laughs> just mm -hmm. a, stumbling into these, these scenarios. Well, you mentioned Harry Nielsen earlier. He's he's one of my absolute favorites. I know, I think the Beatles famously said that he was their favorite yeah. musician it, at one point. They said he was their favorite band, which was kind of funny, but yeah. Right, right, right. So I wondered what kind of what kind of impact he had on you as an influence. Oh, huge. He, he, I still kind of miss him not being here in a way, you know, because, you know, I was aware that the Beatles loved him. And, you know, I remember as a kid seeing the points on TV and, again, not knowing anything about him or what he looked like, but just loving those songs and loving... Uh, you know, whatever they were playing on the radio, like uh, Without You and stuff. And it's funny because before I made my first album, you know, I met all these producers. I didn't know who to work with. And T-Bone Burnett, he could tell from listening to my demos that I was a big Nielsen fan. And he tried to actually hook us up. And he called me in my hotel room and said, hey, I've, I've just spoken with Harry. He wants to talk to you. <laughs> so I spent the whole night in my room looking at the phone. And, you know, of course, he never called. Um, and then I think it was about four months later he died. So I never yeah. never, never got to meet him. But um, but I dedicated my first album to him. And, uh, you know, and he's someone that I just go to when I, you know, I, it, he sort of cheers me up. His music had a nice, I always got a good sense of humor. And uh, even, you know, even his sad songs are kind of funny. Yeah, that that PBC special I watch it on YouTube all the time. Yeah, it's wonderful. Yeah, I got that on DVD. That one. So. Yeah, I like it better than actually what's on the records. Like, it, I don't know. I just find it much more pure or something. Well, it, it's the only time you ever, anyone's ever seen him play live, and he's he's so great just on piano and voice or guitar and voice. It's sort of a shame that he didn't do more of that. Um, but uh, yeah, you know he's uh, 
he's up there for me. I've read a few biographies, and you know, Warren Zevon's another guy that I really admire as much as Nielsen, and for his humor and his his kind of point of view. I read in the New Yorker profile that you had a scare where doctors removed, I think, a lump from your throat that fortunately was benign. But yeah. I wonder just how that scare may have changed you artistically. Well, when it happened, it was, you know, I was about to make an album that, um, you know, would be this one called Forever Endeavor. And in fact, in the middle of it, I had to come back to do a CAT scan. But it was just sort of unnerving to feel this sort of thing in my throat. And then, you know, sure enough to go have it checked out. And they didn't know what it was. And, and uh, you know, and it was the waiting, you know, that, you know, as Tom Petty said, it was the hardest part because there'd be these waiting for tests and then waiting for results. And um, so by the time I finally got the report that it was benign, I almost collapsed because of all the worrying. Um, and I was making this record that was kind of becoming more about uh, mortality, and I was thinking, maybe this is my last record. Um, and it's just a strange feeling. You walk around, everything seems like it's in slow motion. And again, I know people who've had cancer, and they, they fought it, and, um, and and some who have lost. So, I mean, I, I'm very grateful, again, that it was just a scare. But, um, you know, it, it was... So I, maybe it made, hopefully it made me maybe appreciate things more because um, I've made quite a few albums since that one. So so it's, it's just uh, it's strange to think, well, this is my last one and then, oh, I guess it isn't. And now I've just made another one. So. Well, and I, I guess just the last couple of questions is yeah. what was it like for you to turn from music to writing writing your first book? That was probably, from a writing perspective, the hardest thing I've ever done. Um, you know, I didn't really... All I had to go on were the books that I loved, like, you know, Dickens and Mark Twain and stuff. I had so many questions while I was writing it, and nobody really to answer them. But, you know, I, I just had to... It was like a vision I had of a, a story. I had an arc of a story, and I kept thinking about it. And again, this was, you know, probably 2014, and it wasn't until 2015 that um, this, you know, it was actually Penguin who told me that I should write it, and they gave me a deadline, actually. And so I, I was heading out on the road, and I just rode every day in the van, which was a great way to sort of kill time because some of the drives were quite long. And uh, I just kept at it. I mean, 16 drafts later, and I finally finished the thing. And uh, so it came out in 2017. But it was I was really pulling my hair out over it, because I had to go back. Because sometimes you'd write something later in the book, you realize didn't line up with something earlier in the book, so you had to go back and fix that. And um, so it was a kind of involved editing process, and finally, and it's not a very big book either, so I felt like I was writing War and Peace or something, but you could actually read the thing in a few hours. Hmm. Do, you, do you think you're going to write another one? You know, I tried to write a sort of a prequel to Dear Life, and I got about six chapters in, and then I stalled. 
and um, which is fine. I mean, I don't know if if I'll ever finish it, but the one thing I have done is I've written a, a musical about Dear Life that I would really love for it to get off the ground, whether it's on stage or in a movie, because um, I think the songs are great, and I think with the right you know, script and artistic direction, I think it could be a really good sort of family movie. Um, but obviously, you know, I'm not from that world, so it's a little harder to, you know, get things off the ground. So, But every now and then I'll meet a film director or someone that seems interested. And, uh, so I hope that happens. I really appreciate your time today, Ron. Thank you. Great. Awesome. Good luck, Ron. Well, thanks, Thank you. thanks, Bryn. All right. Take care. Yeah, bye. You too. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Tourist Information. The producers are George Alarcon Swaby and myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler. Please subscribe or rate the podcast. It helps us to keep bringing them out. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>